Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. On behalf of the Graduate Council of the Academic Senate, it's my very great pleasure to welcome you today to the Moses Lecture to be given by Professor Herma Hill Kay. Now, I'm particularly honored to introduce a woman that I have long admired for many, many years from afar and more recently from across the campus. Um, when I was practicing family law, in the late 1970s as a young lawyer. Her name was legend already because she was enormously influential in shaping what has become a, a national revolution in family law, which began in California with the passage of the No Fault Divorce Act in 1969. And Herma's name has come up always. She is and always will be a mover and shaker in, in family law. She's also, when I came to the campus in 1989, she was uh, still one of the handful of women who were on the faculty of major law schools. And then she achieved the role of dean shortly after that in 1992. Again, one of the pioneers, just a few women who, who were deans in law schools. So she's always been in first and foremost uh, in my mind and on the campus as well. My only real regret is that she's no longer in the council of deans. And I was telling her um, before for the lecture since I just became a dean this fall. It's a very lonely place in the Council of Deans because there's still no women at the top at Berkeley. It's, now that, now that Herm has gone, that's a great, great hole as well. Uh, the Bernard Moses Memorial Lectureship in the Social Sciences was established by the President and Regents of the University in 1937. The lecture honors the memory of the late Bernard Moses, who founded the teaching of social sciences at Berkeley. From his classes, these must have been some classes, grew the departments of history, economics, political science, and jurisprudence. Described as a man of extraordinary depth, breadth, and vision, Professor Moses was an inspiration to students and to colleagues alike. Herma Hill Kay upholds the distinction of the Moses Lectureship. She is, as I mentioned, an incredibly renowned family law scholar and the Barbaran, uh, Barbara Nocturne Armstrong Professor of Law at Bolt Hall, School, Bolt Hall School of Law at the University of California, Berkeley. Professor Kay joined the Bolt Hall faculty in 1960 after clerking for California Supreme, Supreme Court Justice Roger Trainer. Just two years after joining the faculty, she received the Berkeley Distinguished Teaching Award. And I can tell you, for faculty on campus, that is as good as you get on this campus. It really shows that the students appreciate you and that you are doing a spectacular job of what we're supposed to do, which is teaching our students. From 1992 to 2000, she served as dean of the law school. In 1998, the National Law Journal named Professor Kay as one of the 50 most influential female lawyers in the country and one of the eight most influential lawyers in Northern California. I'd say probably number one in that, that category. Professor Kay's work has focused on family law and gender studies, particular in regards to sex-based discrimination and marital property. She is considered one of the foremost authorities in the field of family law and has been heralded in both the private and public 
public sector as a preeminent scholar. Needless to say, her resume goes on at great length. In her lecture today entitled From the Second Sex to the Joint Venture, an Overview of Women's Rights and Family Law in the United States, Professor Kay will address American women's struggles for political independence and socioeconomic equality from the viewpoint of family law reform and the emerging law of employment discrimination. It is her view that as we go forward into the 21st century, much of the intellectual challenge for those concerned about women's rights will focus on the challenge of securing, interpreting, and building on the advances won during the 20th century. And so I am very eager to hear this lecture by a woman who I greatly admire, Professor King. Thank you very much, Dean Mason, for that um, really extraordinary introduction. I should say that um, Dean Mason herself is quite renowned as a family law scholar as well as a practitioner. She has published several books which focus on children's rights and child custody, which have been very influential in stimulating reforms in that area and has been an active member of a working group, an interdisciplinary group, uh, which includes, among others, my colleague, Professor Steve Sugarman, who's here today, to work on very important issues concerning broadly the family and family law. So it's a great pleasure for me to be uh, introduced by you, Dean Mason. I am, of course, very honored to have been appointed as this year's Bernard Moses Memorial Lecturer, although my topic does not touch on his scholarly interests in Latin America. It does draw on history and the social sciences for its account of family law and women's rights. I'm doubly honored to join the distinguished list of Moses lecturers who have held this position in earlier years. Uh, picking up on Mary Ann's comment about being one of the few women on the Council of Deans, I always look at such lists to see if there have been other women before me, and I was delighted to find on this list the name of Professor of Anthropology Elizabeth Colson. Uh, this is the second time that I will be trying to follow in Elizabeth Colson's footsteps since she also preceded me as the first woman chair of the Berkeley Budget Committee. Um, I look at this list, secondly, to see whether there were any other lawyers so honored, and I think that I am the sole representative of that branch of learning. Uh, and in the expectation that the audience would be composed primarily of non-lawyers, uh, I have tried to uh, prevent my remarks from being unduly technical. Uh, those of you who would like to see the uh, paper on which these remarks are based uh, in its full glory with all the uh, footnotes without which we lawyers can never publish anything uh, are invited to look at the California Law Review's Millennium Issue, which will appear in December. I should comment that the editors of the California Law Review are of the view that the millennium has not yet occurred and indeed will not occur until January 1, 2001, so their issue is not a year late. In their view, it is exactly on time. So let me begin uh, with the discussion. 
the movement of 20th century family law in the United States has been away from a patriarchal model and towards a more egalitarian one. Formerly, the husband was the legal head of the household, responsible for its support and links to the external society, while the wife was the mistress of the home, responsible for the day-to-day -day management of its internal affairs and the care and education of children. More recently, those roles have tended to converge, and the family is frequently referred to as a partnership or a family firm. This trend did not, of course, begin in the 20th century. Its origins can be traced to the greater independence enjoyed by married women in the American colonies and on the frontier than by their British sisters. Dating the clear emergence of the modern American family to the 1830s, historian Carl Daigler argues that its development over the next 150 years was closely entwined with and influenced by the American woman's push for autonomy and individuality. Beginning at roughly the same period and continuing until the end of the 1990s, a similar influence has been at work in shaping the contours of American family law. As we look forward to the 21st century, the sea change in the nation's economy and culture that has become evident in the last decade of the 20th century, represented by the information revolution and the emergence of the internet, may offer the potential for resolving what Carl Daigler saw as the intense dilemma between the values of family and the realization of women's individuality. Daigler maintained that this dilemma had put the future of the family and the fulfillment of women as persons at odds with each other. The playing out of this trend, I will argue, suggests that rather than a partnership, marriage in the 21st century may become more like a joint venture formed for specific transactions and renewable at the pleasure of the venturers. In the closing years of the 20th century, however, a nascent counter-trend has emerged, rooted in nostalgia for the way things were, that offers couples the choice of a covenant marriage requiring greater formal commitment and the ideal of a lifelong relationship. As the millennium approaches, the question remains open whether one of these two trends will prevail or whether both will coexist in ideological, if not functional, opposition. In part one of this talk, I will briefly describe the major changes in American family law during the 19th century that help explain the legal reforms that dominated the 20th century drawing on historical and socio sociological accounts of the related developments affecting the American family and the status of women during that period. Part two examines in more detail the family law reform movements of the 20th century, primarily the divorce law reforms that Dean Mason mentioned, as well as contemporaneous women's issues and advancements. Finally, in part three, I will offer a few modest speculations about how family law and women's rights may evolve in the 21st century. Let us begin then with the 19th century. At the time colonial America was settled, marriage was the primary occupation for women. By the mid-18th century, in both common understanding and legal definition, marriage was an institution created by the state for the purpose of regulating and carrying on family life. The marital status thus created 
was one that conferred virtually all legal rights upon the husband who became the head of the newly established household. Blackstone's mid-18th century description of the English law of marriage as subsuming the legal personality of the wife into that of the husband so that the two became one and that one was the husband was considered to be the defining characteristic of American common law marriage as well. The 19th century family was organized into separate spheres in which husbands and wives had well-recognized and different functions, the one public, the other private, and in which wives were considered to be in charge of the moral and spiritual needs of the family. 19th century American feminists, however, rejected Blackstone's concept of marriage. Less than a century after his treatise appeared, both the 1848 Seneca Falls Declaration of Sentiments and the 1855 marriage protest signed by Lucy Stone and Henry Blackwell on their wedding day included an indictment of the very provisions that Blackstone had seen as, quote, for the most part intended for the wife's protection and benefit, close quote. In the 1840s, state legislatures began to enact Married Women's Property Acts designed to eliminate or modify the harsh common law doctrines that had limited the legal status of married women. By the 1850s, state legislatures had turned their attention to the earnings statutes that gave married women property rights and their labor outside the home. The more radical demand of the 19th century feminists for joint property rights in their household labor posed a more fundamental assault on the husband's right to the wife's services during marriage and was not successful. Now, while the colonies adopted the English common law of marriage, they resisted the ecclesiastical law of marriage and divorce. Canon law, which held sway in England until the time of Henry VIII, regarded marriage as a sacrament and therefore indissoluble. The ecclesiastical courts exercised jurisdiction over marriage and allowed only judicial separation between lawfully married spouses, thus preventing remarriage. Since there were no ecclesiastical courts in the colonies and no clear provision for civil divorce, marriage dissolution was handled on an ad hoc basis in the New England colonies and they produced divorce laws that had been characterized as the easiest in Christendom at a time when the eloquence of a Milton was unable to loosen the bonds of matrimony in England. After the colonies won their independence in 1776, states had to determine how and whether divorce could be obtained. Thus, unlike England, which did not permit absolute divorce and remarriage until after 1857, state legislatures acted to grant such jurisdiction to the civil courts much earlier. By 1799, 12 states in the Northwest Territory had adopted divorce statutes, and by 1860, only South Carolina refused to permit absolute divorce. This wider availability of divorce stimulated public debate between conservatives and liberals both before and after the Civil War. During the 1850s and 1860s, leaders of the 19th century women's movement took up the matter as well. Both Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton supported liberalized divorce, Stanton on the ground that it was necessary for the liberation of women. The Reverend Antoinette Brown Blackwell, however, defended the indissolubility of marriage. 
After the Civil War, the debate resurfaced with renewed fervor. In 1868, with the financial support of George Francis Train, Stanton and Anthony began publishing a weekly paper called The Revolution, in which they advocated both women's suffrage and reform of the divorce laws. Stanton's uncompromising support for liberalized divorce was one factor that contributed to a split among 19th century feminists over the most effective strategy for achieving suffrage. Her public condemnation of the 1870 acquittal of Daniel McFarlane for shooting and killing his wife's lover, lover, Albert D. Richardson, added fuel to the fervor over divorce. In 1867, Abby McFarlane had left her husband, described as a man who drank too much and was unable to earn a steady income, and accepted the protection of Richardson. Lacking grounds for divorce in her home state of New York, she traveled to Indiana, lived there for 16 months, and obtained a divorce in 1869. The couple planned to marry upon her return to New York, but their plans were thwarted when McFarlane shot his rival. Richardson nonetheless managed to marry Abby on his deathbed. The trial, combining as it did the drama of a failed marriage, adultery, intrigue, migratory divorce, and violent death involving socially prominent New Yorkers, immediately became the centerpiece of the debate over divorce. McFarland's acquittal in 1870 was denounced in public lectures by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who saw the verdict as a vindication of the husband's legal right of domination over the wife and indissoluble marriage as the equivalent of slavery. The last decades of the 19th century witnessed an organized effort by conservatives to repudiate what they saw as easy divorce. The movement began in Connecticut in the late 1860s, where President Theodore Woolsey of Yale University published a series of articles on divorce. Beginning with the Hebrews, Greeks, and Romans, he traced the history of divorce to his own time and place, and he was quick to condemn what he saw. He said, quote, we perceive that the number of causes for which divorce may be obtained has been very considerably increased in modern times. There is an increasing desire to be free from the marriage bond on grounds which were of old regarded as insufficient, and an increased willingness on the part of lawmakers to gratify such a desire, as well as an increasing tendency to legislate on marriage as being a mere contract to the neglect of its moral aspect. Moral indignation no longer visits the adulterer or adulteress. The more vulgar newspapers joke about the crime, and divorced persons are no longer under that frown which met them formally, even when divorced for causes below the greatest. In his concluding chapter called Principles of Divorce Legislation, Wolsey set out nine principles which he believed should go into the formation of a good divorce law. The most significant of these were the seventh and eighth, which became in effect the working agenda for conservative reformers. The seventh suggested that the law ought to be drafted in specific terms and seek to leave little discretion in the hands of judges. The eighth was the divorce laws of the several states ought to be brought into substantial uniformity. The seventh principle was aimed at Connecticut's so-called omnibus ground for divorce, which had been enacted in 1849 and which permitted divorce 
for, quote, any such misconduct as permanently destroys the happiness of the petitioner and defeats the purpose of the marriage relation, not too far from irreconcilable differences. Responding to pressure exerted by conservative reformers, the Connecticut legislature commissioned a study of divorce, which resulted in statistics showing that the number of divorces granted in the state between 1849 and 1864 had nearly trebled. Connecticut thereupon repealed the offending omnibus clause, and on January 24, 1881, the victorious conservatives formed the New England Divorce Reform League with Woolsey as its president to carry the struggle into other states. By 1855, I'm sorry, 1885, the regional organization had expanded, becoming the National Divorce Reform League, and 12 years later, in a move that foreshadowed events occurring at the end of the 20th century, the group had broadened its agenda and renamed itself the National League for the Protection of the Family. Woolsey expanded upon his eighth principle, which sought in part to end migratory divorce, taking aim at the practices of Indiana. If it had not been clear earlier, the McFarland-Richardson affair had made it obvious that no state had effective control over its own divorce policies as long as another state, one with less rigid divorce laws and a flexible attitude towards which persons might call themselves residents, was willing to entertain the interstate traffic. Early on, Indiana made itself available to unhappy spouses from other states with its capital, Indianapolis, easily accessible to New Yorkers by railroad. Woolsey and his fellow conservatives had two strategies to close these avenues of easy divorce, a federal divorce law and the enactment of uniform laws by the individual states. Perhaps the most significant and certainly the most enduring byproduct of the second strategy was the creation in New York in 1890 of an organization to address the issue of uniform state laws. This organization ultimately became known as the National Conference of Commissioners on Uniform State Laws, called NACUSL for short, one of the country's two premier institutions devoted to law reform, the other being the American Law Institute. Although NACUSL ultimately promulgated a Uniform Marriage and Divorce Act in 1970, its initial efforts in that direction failed and were soon abandoned in favor of more successful ventures in the commercial law field. Uh, the ALI appears later uh, in these remarks uh, as picking up uh, in the uh, late 80s after the NACUSL's efforts. Meanwhile, the 19th century women's movement had refocused its attention on suffrage. In 1890, Elizabeth Cady Stanton became president of the newly created National American Women's Suffrage Association. While her interest in the divorce reform continued, her chief projects became suffrage and a critique of the role of organized religion on the subordination of women. So as the 19th century closed, the laws governing marriage and divorce had been entrusted by the state legislatures to the civil courts, subject to minimal constitutional control with a common set of grounds which ranged from adultery to mental cruelty to desertion to some uh, involving separation. And while Blackstone's doctrine of coverture had not been entirely repudiated, it had surely been weakened by the statutory recognition of the married woman's right to control her property and her right to sue for divorce. 
We turn now to the 20th century. During the first two decades of the 20th century, while the conservative attack on easy divorce noted above was playing itself out, family law reform was not a priority for the women's movement. Instead, the movement concentrated its energies on the struggle for the vote. Once the 19th Amendment was adopted, however, it soon became apparent that what had been won was the vote for women rather than a woman's vote. In 1923, three years after ratification, Alice Paul, founder of the National Women's Party, began lobbying for another amendment, an Equal Rights Amendment, that might do for women what she and other radical suffragists had hoped for from the 19th. Then as later, the ERA divided women. Florence Kelly of the Consumers League opposed the ERA in part because it would rule out the possibility of protective legislation for working women. The dispute came to a head in the United States Supreme Court in 1923 when the court was considering Adkins versus Children's Hospital, a case dealing with the legitimacy of the minimum wage for women only in the District of Columbia. Alice Paul and Kelly appeared on opposite sides of the case, and when the court invalidated the minimum wage for women, these differences ultimately spelled the end of the 19th century women's movement. For all practical purposes, the movement had spent itself the drive for the ballot. The nonpartisan League of Women Voters, founded by Carrie Chapman Catt, is the sole organizational survivor of the period. Although much remained to be done in restructuring marriage and divorce to put women and men on a more equal footing, the family law reforms that began in the mid-20th century were conceived and largely drafted without the active participation of an organized women's movement. Divorce law reform, which was to become the 20th century's most significant contribution to family law, was not seriously addressed at the national level again until after World War II. Meanwhile, Nevada solidified its position as Indiana's successor and the nation's leading divorce capital by expanding its grounds for divorce and shortening its mandatory residence period. The United States Supreme Court provided a constitutional foundation for Nevada's interstate divorce business in the 1940s with a series of decisions that required sister states to give full faith and credit to migratory divorces granted on a jurisdictional finding that plaintiff was domiciled in the forum state. In the early decades of the 20th century, women continued to enter the labor market in gradually increasing numbers. In June 1900, women constituted 18.1% of all workers. January 1920, the figure had increased to 20.4%, and by April 1930 to 21.9%. During World War I, as during the Civil War, women entered the labor market to take up positions left vacant by men who served in the war effort. But in both cases, after the hostilities were over, most women returned home. This pattern did not repeat itself after World War II. An estimated 6.5 million women, more than half of them homemakers, took jobs between 1941 and 1944. When the war in Europe ended in May 1945, women constituted 57% of the workforce. Predictably, large numbers of these women either resigned from their jobs or were laid off after the war ended. But contrary to the expectation of some observers, other women took their places. 
post-World War II divorce reform. The United States divorce rate, which had been rising steadily since the 1860s, increased dramatically following the end of both World War I and II. In 1867, the number of divorces per 100 marriages occurring in the same year was estimated to be 2.8, in 1890, 5.8, in 1910, 8.8, in 1930, 17.4, and in 1949, 25.1. A national preoccupation with divorce emerged after World War II, fueled by the rising divorce statistics and a renewed interest in the problem of the American family on the part of social scientists and psychiatrists. The organized bar, as well, was concerned about the divorce problem. In May 1948, the American Bar Association joined with 125 private organizations and five federal agencies in sponsoring a national conference on family life, which was convened by President Truman at the White House. The most enduring legacy of the conference was a sustained effort by the ABA to reform the divorce laws and court procedures. Before the conference began, noted lawyer Reginald Heber Smith, who chaired the ABA's delegation, condemned the existing divorce laws in strong terms in a nationally popular magazine, stating that, quote, in the whole administration of justice, there is nothing that even remotely can compare in terms of rottenness with divorce proceedings. Smith proposed a fresh start in the legal approach to divorce, one that would eliminate the adversary system marred by perjured testimony and substitute an effort to prevent divorce through reconciliation under the auspices of the court. If reconciliation failed, the law should treat marriage as a contract, not as a sacrament, and should grant a divorce. Following the conference, the ABA established an interprofessional commission on marriage and divorce under the leadership of Judge Paul Alexander of the Family Court of Toledo, Ohio, to study and recommend improvements in marriage and divorce laws and practices. The chief product of the interprofessional commission was one of the early socio-legal studies, which was researched by Maxine Virtue and published under the title Family Cases and Court in 1956. Prominent law professor Max Reinstein of the University of Chicago and a member of the interprofessional commission had no compunctions about his views of the grounds for divorce. He discerned a tension between what he termed the law in action versus the law of the books, a widely influential phrase used as a title of one of his articles. Stanford law professor Lawrence Friedman later attributed the peculiar shape of divorce law to this same tension. As Reinstein described the conflict, uh, it was that the law of the books was very strict. The various state statutes listed specific acts of marital misconduct that constituted grounds for divorce, such as adultery, cruelty, desertion, and so on, one of which must be proved in court. The uh, requirements of proof were very strict. Uh, if the plaintiff had also committed one of these acts of misconduct, then there could be no divorce, for divorce was a remedy granted only to an innocent spouse against a guilty spouse, and if both spouses were guilty, they were left to discover mutual forgiveness. <laughs> Finally, the court was empowered to investigate what had really happened in the marriage and the testimony of corroborating witnesses was required. 
since the state was a party to every divorce proceeding, if the judge was not satisfied that the law had been observed, the divorce must be denied. The law in action, as Reinstein portrayed it, was quite different. Quote, the practice, as we all know, looks considerably different. Where parties are really in agreement, they can get a divorce for the asking. The wife appears before the court with two witnesses, her sister and her mother, or two friends, and they swear that they saw the husband slap his wife twice. Then the divorce is granted, and it is a quick and painless procedure, except for the payment of the lawyer's fee. In New York, where adultery was the only ground for divorce, there is the famous practice of hotel evidence. It is arranged that at a certain hour, the husband will be found in a hotel room together with a woman, not his wife, and then the court draws the necessary conclusions. For parties who could afford it, Reinstein explained, migratory divorce was available. Quote, one thing must not be forgotten. There are people in New York who cannot afford the social expense of being found guilty of adultery. In Chicago, it is not to everybody's taste to be officially certified to have beaten up his wife twice. So in that case, they go to Reno or the Virgin Islands. Of course, anybody who seeks a divorce in the Virgin Islands or in Nevada and who does not happen to belong to the select but small group of real residents of these states has to perjure himself. He has to swear that he has come to that state or those islands with the intention of staying there indefinitely. Well, the truthfulness of that oath is a little doubtful when one already has his return ticket in his pocket. <laughs> Reinstein warned that the situation he had described was fraught with dangers and went on to specify what those dangers were. The most dangerous possibility, he said, is that these practices will cause disrespect for the law in general, disrespect for the priests of the law, and a very real danger of corruption of the bar. Lawrence Friedman, later describing the same dual system of divorce in greater detail, stated uncompromisingly that, quote, its main element was simply collusion, collusion between husband and wife and among husband, wife, lawyer, and judges. He went on to expand on Reinstein's warning, quote, why did judges and the whole legal system put up with a regime of massive lying and deceit? In almost every state, perjury or something close to it was a way of life in divorce court. Here was a system that nobody could honestly defend in its entirety. It was, in the first instance, collusive and underhanded. It was also irrational and unfair. It was costly for people who wanted divorce. For people who were opposed to divorce, it contained far too many loopholes. Yet the system persisted. It persisted because there was no acceptable alternative. Divorce law was a compromise between two irreconcilable social demands. On the one hand, there was a genuine demand for divorce, a demand for ways to regularize legal status inside the family and thus ensure rights of property, inheritance, and the smooth operation of the land market. Such a status was available legitimately only through divorce. This demand interacted with and fed upon a demand for moral legitimacy in relationships of family and sex. Once a marriage broke up, divorce was, for all its stigma, the sole route to that kind of legitimacy. There were also competing demands for strict divorce laws to protect family structure, to strengthen the home, and to prevent immorality and sin." Close quote. Friedman's analysis is perceptive and trenchant. 
Yet the system he described was more vulnerable than it appeared. At the bottom, it rested on a tacit social agreement to condemn experimentation with sexuality while condoning sufficient flexibility in practice to accommodate the necessary access to remarriage. But the exceptions made for those unhappy spouses willing to misrepresent either their conduct or their domiciliary intent in a court of law ultimately became too numerous and too prominent, including, as they did, Governor Rockefeller of New York, to be tolerated. The reemergence of the women's movement in the 1960s. The period of the 1960s was one of extraordinary social and political ferment in the United States. In 1960, the Federal Drug Administration approved the first birth control pill for contraceptive use, thus for the first time providing women with a reliable method of controlling their fertility. African-American students began their lunch counter sit-ins in Greensboro, North Carolina in February 1960, adding a new urgency to the civil rights movement. The first president of the United States to be born in the 20th century, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, was elected that November. He kindled a mood of optimism and energy in the country, particularly among young people. In 1961, he established the Presidential Commission on Women and named Eleanor Roosevelt as its chair. This was followed by state commissions, uh, which were enacted by many state uh, legislatures and governors. As an advocate for the emancipation of women, the Presidential Commission had a somewhat mixed record. It opposed the perennial Equal Rights Amendment as unnecessary, but it recommended the adoption of a federal statute guaranteeing that working women would be paid the same as men for performing the same work. The resulting Equal Pay Act was enacted in 1963. Responding to the efforts of liberals and African Americans under the leadership of the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., and pressured by the Birmingham riots in 1963, President Kennedy sent a civil rights bill to Congress in June. It was enacted in 1964 after his assassination had made Lyndon Johnson president. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, meant to redress the situation of African Americans in the workplace, contained an unexpected bonus for women. Title VII of the Act, as originally drafted, forbade discrimination in employment based on race, color, religion, or national origin. As enacted, however, it also applied to discrimination based on sex. These federal laws were copied by many state laws, and they may have helped to facilitate the entry of women into the labor market in dramatically increased numbers between 1960 and 1980. The number of women workers doubled during that period from 23 million to 45.5 million in 1980. And in 1963, a full-time full-time housewife and Smith College graduate named Betty Friedan published The Feminine Mystique, a book credited with helping to awaken the 20th century women's movement. Three years later, in 1966, a small group of women convinced that Title VII would never be enforced to benefit women unless an advocacy group for women, equivalent to the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, existed founded the National Organization for Women. Turning now to divorce reform, the triumph of no-fault divorce. 
1963, the same year that Friedan's book was published, the groundwork was being laid in California that culminated six years later in the enactment of the country's first pure no-fault divorce law. I mean by a pure no-fault divorce law, a law which abolishes all other grounds for divorce and has as its sole reason for dissolving a marriage a no-fault basis. At about the same time that the California Legislative Interim Committee began its hearings on these matters, the Archbishop of Canterbury appointed a group of clergymen, lawyers, and laypersons to examine the divorce laws of England. Governor Edmund G. Pat Brown appointed his Governor's Commission in 1966 after the legislative early efforts had foundered. The report of the Archbishop's Group and that of the California Governor's Commission were remarkably similar in their analysis and recommendations. Both concluded that divorce based on fault no longer represented sound legal or social policy, and both, both recommended the adoption of a marriage breakdown standard administered in a non-adversary setting as the sole basis for marital dissolution. Both reports appeared in 1966, and that year as well, the New York legislature managed to free itself from political stalemate that had hindered earlier efforts to expand on its sole adultery ground for divorce and enacted legislation permitting divorce based on marital separation for a period of time, which is itself a no-fault ground in that there is no uh, fault basis given for the separation. While New York did not initially go as far as California and England, the confluence of these three independent events signaled the beginning of the 20th century breakthrough in divorce reform. The California Family Law Act became effective on January 1, 1970. Seven months later, a recommendation for no-fault divorce appeared at the national level when the CUSL promulgated the 1970 version of the Uniform Marriage and Divorce Act. The endorsement of no-fault divorce at the national level by Nacusel and the American Bar Association represented a triumph for the 20th century family law reform effort. State legislatures had begun to consider the new approach even before the ABA's final concurrence was forthcoming, and as they did, the newly reorganized women's movement made its presence felt. Divorce reform had been no more a high priority on the agenda of the women's movement in the 1970s than it had been in the 1870s. Other pressing issues, including abortion and ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, took precedence. As in divorce, California was a leader in the abortion reform movement. In 1959, when the American Law Institute's Model Penal Code proposed a therapeutic abortion law, California, like most states, prohibited abortion subject only to an exception for procedures necessary to save the life of the mother. As in the case of divorce, however, a dichotomy existed between hospital practice and the criminal law of abortion, between the law in action and the law on the books. A survey of a sample of California hospitals covering the period 1952 to 1956 disclosed that three-fourths of them were aware that some of the therapeutic abortions they performed were not within the exception contained in the statute, notably those for German measles. Not all of the proponents of abortion law reform, however, were content to concentrate their attention on appeals to the state legislatures. 
1970, plaintiffs Jane Rowe and Mary Doe began separate proceedings in federal court to challenge the constitutionality of both the criminal abortion law of Texas and the newly enacted therapeutic abortion law of Georgia. Those challenges were ultimately successful in 1973 when the United States Supreme Court, by a vote of seven to two, struck down the Texas statute in Roe versus Wade and invalidated the Georgia law in Doe versus Bolton. The ALI commentary on the model penal code treated these cases as superseding the state criminal abortion laws in all states. As time went on, however, it became clear that the struggle over abortion, which consumed the nation in the latter decades of the 20th century, began rather than ended with the Supreme Court's 1973 decisions. Along with abortion law reform, the Equal Rights Amendment occupied the attention of the women's movement in the 1970s. Now demanded congressional hearings on the proposed Equal Rights Amendment in 1970, and after a protracted debate, Congress sent the ERA to the states for ratification in 1972. The initial seven-year period allowed for ratification of the amendment was scheduled to end in 79, but as the deadline approached with only 35 affirmative votes cast of the 38 needed to reach the required three-fourths of the states, Congress acted to extend the ratification period to 1982. The timetable set for ratification of the ERA meant that state legislatures were considering abortion measures, proposals for no-fault divorce, and the ERA during the same period, roughly between the late 60s to the early 80s. It is not surprising that the efforts of ERA proponents to build a wall of separation between ratification and the abortion issue were unsuccessful. Indeed, the debates on all three issues dwelt on the role of women in society. Ultimately, proponents embraced the concept that the ERA would mandate equal treatment in the financial aspects of divorce, in particular the obligation of support during marriage, the award of spousal support after separation, and property division. In doing so, they attracted opposition from conservative women led by Phyllis Schlafly, the founder of an organization called Stop ERA, who perceived the amendment as a threat to housewives. During the 1970s, while all these other heady matters were going on, uh, a quiet campaign was underway in the federal courts to create a secure place for women in the United States Constitution. This campaign was conceived, implemented, and carried out by the Women's Rights Project of the American Civil Liberties Union under the leadership of a then obscure law professor named Ruth Bader Ginsburg. When the campaign began, the United States Supreme Court's interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause consisted of a two-tier review process. Claims were tested either under the deferential rational relationship standard or under the strict scrutiny standard. The first standard was said to be offended only if the classification rests on grounds wholly irrelevant to the achievement of the state's objective. A statutory discrimination will not be set aside if any state of facts reasonably may be conceived to justify it. Most of the equal protection claims affecting women had been relegated to this standard. Not surprisingly, they were all defeated on the theory that, relation, that the statutory lines drawn between men and women were entirely rational. 
Ruth Ginsburg and her allies at the ACLU uh, had the bold ambition of raising the, the constitutional standard for women to equal that which had been established for race, uh, a standard known as the strict scrutiny standard. Uh, this higher standard uh, was reserved for suspect classifications such as race or national origin, as well as those for fundamental interests such as voting were involved. Such cases, the government was required to show a much closer fit between ends and means. It had to show that it was promoting, pursuing a compelling state interest and the classification was necessary to promote that interest. Ginsburg later explained the strategy underlying the cases that she chose to argue to the Supreme Court. The 1980s cases, she said, all rested on the same fundamental premise that the law's differential treatment of men and women typically rationalized as reflecting natural differences between the sexes historically had tended to contribute to women's subordination to their confined place in a man's world, even when conceived as protective of the fairer but weaker and dependent-prone sex. So she took cases to the court that involved discrimination affecting men as well as women, and her strategy succeeded brilliantly. When she left the academy to accept appointment to the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit in 1980, the intermediate scrutiny standard had been well established, which was an intermediate standard between the uh, rational basis standard and the strict scrutiny standard, and with it, women's enhanced ability to assert constitutional claims for equality. Another constitutional clause was also being exploited for its benefit to women, uh, the uh, right of abortion as privacy under the Due Process Clause. By the mid-1980s, when President Ronald Reagan appointed Justice Sandra Day O'Connor as the first woman member of the Supreme Court, no-fault divorce had been adopted in one version or another in all 50 states. The ERA had failed by three votes to secure ratification and a determined effort to overturn Roe and Doe was underway. As the decade wore on, it became increasingly evident that the Supreme Court's emphasis on the physician's medical autonomy rather than the woman's right of choice in its articulation of the Roe standard applicable during the first trimester of pregnancy had committed the judges to the uncomfortable and apparently unending task of parsing the latest developments in medicine and measuring them against this newly created right of privacy. During this period, the struggle over abortion became a pivotal factor in political elections and spilled over into the process of the selection of Supreme Court justices. In 1987, pro-choice advocates joined other liberal groups in persuading the Senate to deny confirmation to President Reagan's anti-choice nominee, Judge Robert Bork. It was not until 1992 when the court reaffirmed the essential holding of Roe versus Wade in Planned Parenthood against Casey and Justices Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy, and David Souter in their joint opinion announced their decision to abandon the trimester timetable approach of Roe that the court began to shift the legal focus of its abortion analysis from the physician to the pregnant woman. The joint opinion in Casey drew the line at viability. Before that point, it stated plainly, the woman has a right to choose to terminate her pregnancy. 
The joint opinion also recognized, however, that the state's profound interest in potential life exists throughout pregnancy and that state regulation of abortion must meet an undue burden standard. The court, in this most recent term, in June 2000, adopted the undue burden standard uh, as a standard approved by the majority of the court in the so-called late-term abortion decision, but the vote had shifted now to five to four. Meanwhile, in the mid to late 80s, feminist criticism of no-fault divorce began to emerge at roughly the same time that conservatives were calling for a return to family values. Sociologist Lenore Weitzman published her empirical study of the California Family Law Act in 1985. Although earlier critiques had appeared, Weitzman's study was the most influential. She found both that the no-fault philosophy had been accepted by California judges and lawyers as an improvement over the fault system, and that most judges, most divorcing couples, saw it as fair. She also concluded, however, that the removal of fault from the divorce process had fundamentally altered the framework for bargaining between the spouses. No-fault divorce tipped the balance of power away from the one who wanted to preserve the marriage, whose consent, or at least whose non-objection to the divorce had to be secured under the fault regime, to one who wanted to end the relationship and effectively could do so unilaterally. This structural change, plus the failure of judges to implement adequately the spousal and child support laws in the way that the reformers had envisaged, led Weitzman to conclude that the no-fault divorce had radically different economic consequences for women and men. In particular, Weitzman found, quote, that just one year after legal divorce, men experience a 42% improvement in their post-divorce standard of living, while women experience a 73% decline, close quote. Weitzman's startling finding of a substantial gender gap in the standard of living following divorce was front page news around the country and led to widespread demands for revision of the laws. But her finding was questioned by other researchers even at the time it was announced. When researchers were unable to replicate her findings using her own data, Weitzman acknowledged in 1996 that her original figures had been incorrect. A more recent refinement in the methodology used to make such calculations by using after-tax rather than gross income figures and taking account of monetary transfers between the two households in addition to the payment of court-ordered spousal and child support awards is said to reduce the gender gap to 10%, an 8% decline for women and a 2% increase for men. Before Weitzman corrected her original findings, however, the impression that divorce reform had been an economic disaster for women in California took hold in the public imagination and distorted the national debate over no-fault divorce. Professor Mary Ann Glendon's conclusion, based on a comparative analysis of divorce reform provisions in the United States and 20 Western nations, that, quote, more than any other country among those examined here, the United, nation, the United States has accepted the idea of no-fault, no-responsibility divorce, added to the growing sense that additional reforms were required to complement the no-fault laws. Enter the American Law Institute. 
In contrast to the criticism of no-fault divorce by some feminists and conservatives, the American Law Institute sought to build on, clarify, and complete the earlier reforms. In 1989, it reopened family law reform by commencing a project called the Principles of the Law of Family Dissolution. The ALI did not plan to revisit the grounds for divorce. Instead, it accepted the nationwide adoption of no-fault divorce and undertook to complete the reform by drafting provisions dealing with the process of dissolution and substantive standards relevant to child support, spousal support, property division, and custody of children. The ALI project received final approval from the Institute in May 2000. While the principles are still being put into final form and have not yet been published, it is apparent that after nearly 10 years of development and refinement, the project has achieved its goal of clarifying the underlying principles relevant to family dissolution and offering a sound basis for future public policy making. Family breakdown is accepted as a given and appropriate basis for dissolution, and the legal framework surrounding the project's implementation is oriented towards fair treatment of both spouses that is non-punitive, non-sexist, non-paternalistic, and designed as far as possible to facilitate positive outcomes for each of the individuals involved. Now, there has been also a bit of marriage law reform towards uh, the uh, last decade of the uh, 20th century. Uh, there had been some marriage reform earlier uh, in the 1890s, in fact, following emancipation, miscegenation laws forbidding interracial marriage sprang up and had been enacted in 29 states by the late 20s. In 1967, the United States Supreme Court invalidated these laws as a denial of the Equal Protection Clause in a case wonderfully named Loving versus Virginia. Uh, you may, some of you who read the arcane little notices uh, in the New York Times may have noticed that in last Tuesday's election, voters in Alabama successfully repealed the nation's last existing miscegenation law by amending their constitution. Uh, the vote to repeal the law was 60% to 40%. In the late 1990s, laws forbidding same-sex marriage began to be enacted in response to efforts by the gay and lesbian couples to obtain marriage licenses. Constitutional attacks on these laws were unavailing at the federal level, where the United States Supreme Court dismissed an appeal in 1972 from a Minnesota judgment that had refused to extend the rationale of loving to same-sex marriages. When the Hawaii Supreme Court sustained a constitutional attack in 1993 under its state constitution, however, Congress moved swiftly to keep the virus offshore by enacting a provision called the Defense of Marriage Act to make clear that sister states would not be required to recognize Hawaiian marriages. Although the Hawaii voters repudiated same-sex marriage at the polls in 1998, the scene quickly shifted to Vermont in 1999. The Vermont Supreme Court held that the Common Benefits Clause of its state constitution prohibited the state from denying the benefit of marriage to same-sex couples and referred the matter to the state legislature for appropriate action. 
In early 2000, the Vermont legislature responded by creating civil unions for same-sex couples, which are expressly not marriages, but which do confer the benefits and obligation of marriage upon the participants. The application of the Defense of Marriage Act to Vermont civil unions has not yet been tested, but the bulk of the 800 unions so far performed in Vermont have been for out-of-state couples. In the closing years of the 20th century, a full-scale campaign to reverse the no-fault revolution emerged, not unlike the condemnation of easy divorce that we saw uh, at the end of the 19th century. Like Reverend Woolsey and his followers a century before them, the new proponents of fault-based divorce believed that liberalization of the grounds for divorce had caused an increase in the divorce rate. Several also argued that a no-fault re regime harmed children since it provided no incentives for the spouses to resolve their marital problems. To date, none of the recent proposals to return to fault-based divorce have been successful, with the exception of the enactment of covenant marriage laws in Louisiana and Arizona. Louisiana's Covenant Marriage Act, in the words of its drafter, Professor Catherine Shaw Spott, was inspired by a larger ambition than the mere reinstatement of the fault basis for divorce. Rather, her goal is to rehabilitate lifelong marriage. She says, law played an indispensable role in the near destruction of marriage, so surely it can and must, in light of its complicity, contribute to the rehabilitation of marriage for the sake of the children. How best to restore the ideal of eternal self-sacrificial love is the question. Now, the Covenant Marriage Act uh, attempts to uh, arrive at this goal uh, by differentiating covenant marriage from regular marriage. Covenanting spouses must undergo premarital counseling, which they discuss the seriousness of marriage, their intention to have a lifelong marriage, their willingness to agree that they will seek marital counseling in times of marital difficulties, and their understanding that if they choose covenant marriage, their marriage can only be dissolved for specified fault-based grounds or a no-fault ground of living separate and apart for two years. Uh, if after counseling they choose covenant marriage rather than regular marriage, then they sign and file a declaration of, in of intent which repeats all the promises uh, that I've just described to you. Uh, Professor Spott argues that this contract is a legally enforceable contract and that damages can be granted for the breach uh, for failure to seek marital counseling uh, in the event of marital difficulty. She points out that uh, punitive damages, which need not be small, uh, can be available for this breach of contract. Uh, and that uh, if one spouse decides not to reconcile with the other spouse, he must wait two years uh, to file an action for dissolution. During that two-year period, Professor Spate says, he will be paying, quote, a significantly higher sum in spousal support than he will pay after the divorce. He, if he wants to remarry, he will be the especially vulnerable target of this shift in divorce law policy. She does not hesitate to admit that the shift in divorce law policy will permit blackmail if the innocent spouse chooses to enact a high price for her willingness to file for divorce prior to the termination of the two-year period. However, she is unapologetic about this aspect of the law, arguing that punishment should be meted out to a spouse who has breached the covenant marriage contract. 
Perhaps because of these um, draconian terms, covenant marriage got off to a slow start, and the first year of its availability, only 1% of Louisiana couples chose it over regular marriage. Uh, but Professor Spot uh, seems prepared for a long campaign in which she says that advocates of covenant marriage must convince each couple of the desirability of the, uh, the marriage, which requires intensive missionary work, winning converts, one couple at a time. <laughs> now, the women's movement uh, re-emerging at century's end uh, in the wake of the ERA defeat uh, have shifted uh, from family law reform to women's rights in the summer of 1999 as two feminist initiatives of the 1970s, Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 and the Equal Rights Amendment reappeared on the agenda. The uh, victory of the U.S. women's soccer team over China in the Women's World Cup competition touched off a national celebration and realized the promise of Title IX's guarantee of equal play. Future generations of girls will no doubt continue to be inspired by the success of these women in using their skills of the playing fields of team sports. In addition, the success of Iowa and Florida in adding equal rights-like provisions to their state constitutions in 1998 encouraged serious discussion of a renewed drive to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. And in late, late September 2000, the FDA granted final approval for the release of the French abortion pill, RU486. In summary, as the United States enters the closing months of the 20th century, the ALI family law reform effort has completed a predictable legal framework designed to achieve fairness and financial settlement attendant upon family dissolution and to provide a sensible and reliable basis for placement and support of children. The um, two states have looked in a different direction for the sake of the children seeking to recreate self-sacrificial love through the use of findings of guilt and the imposition of punishment. As the proponents of this approach recognize, its success may require a cultural change. The culture that they seek to change is one in which state no-fault divorce laws have removed the stigma of divorce from both women and men and ensured fair treatment to both parties and federal laws forbidding discrimination in employment and education and requiring equal pay for equal work have contributed to women's economic independence. At the same time, Supreme Court decisions have supported women's rights to control their reproductive capacity, and a new technology is at hand that will enable women to exercise that right more effectively and with greater privacy. This culture is the manifestation of a trend that has evolved over two centuries to facilitate the emergence of women as autonomous individuals able to choose the direction of their lives. That trend is now well established, and it is unlikely to be reversed by calls for a return to self-sacrificial love and the implicit model that invokes of a society built on a tradition of family life in which women are the second sex. I move now to conclude with a brief look at challenges for the 21st century. Carl Degler characterized the differing attitudes of 19th and early 20th century men and women towards their work. Quote, although women have been part of the industrial system in the United States virtually from its inception, their relation to that system has always been different in certain fundamental ways from that of men. 
From the outset, women's employment was shaped around the family, while man's work, in a real sense, shaped the family. The family moved, lived, and functioned as man's work decreed. Women's employment, on the other hand, ceased when the family began, and from then on, as we have seen, it adjusted to the needs of the family, for the family was a woman's first responsibility. As the 21st century opens, this observation has lost much of its force for a relatively small but growing number of career women working in the professions, politics, and business. These women come from all racial and ethnic backgrounds and all socioeconomic classes. Unlike many of their mothers and grandmothers, they do not expect to forego family life to take on full-time careers, nor do they derive their identities from their husbands or companions. They are no longer the second sex. Their influence as trendsetters has not yet spread to all women, but their example as role models is powerful. Given the unilateral nature of no-fault divorce, in which either party can declare that the marriage is irretrievably broken at any time, I would suggest that the realistic analogy for marriage in the 21st century is not the partnership, but the joint venture. A joint venture is defined in the commercial setting as a legal entity in the nature of a partnership engaged in a joint undertaking of a particular transaction for mutual profit. A joint venture differs from a partnership in that it does not entail a continuing relationship among the parties. At first glance, the joint venture may seem to be the exact antithesis of a stable relationship and therefore poorly suited to a conceptualization of an enterprise that typically involves the rearing of children. But on closer inspection, the difficulties are less daunting. A joint venture presupposes persons capable of contributing assets to the enterprise and sharing in the risks, thus fitting the model of spouses who are self-sufficient at the outset of the undertaking. The joint venture also requires a community of interest in the performance of the subject matter, surely the hallmark of an agreement to have children and rear them jointly, and one of its features is a right to direct and govern the undertaking as well as the ability to alter the agreement, the duty to share in both profits and losses, thus opening the possibility of affording protection to the joint venturer who may take time out from work to provide a greater share of the child-rearing responsibility. The most attractive aspect of the analogy, however, is its possibility of renewal. At each stage of the project of family life, is completed, the couple must decide whether the venture should be continued to the next stage. Making this decision with the recognition that either spouse is free to terminate the undertaking at will will afford the opportunity to re-examine and, if desired, to reconfirm the commitment of both to the enterprise. The other side of the story, its impact on men, has been as yet only imperfectly explored. The liberal feminists who touched off the second wave of the U.S. women's movement saw themselves as combating stereotypical sex roles that limited both men and women. This vision of equality between men and women in the home as well as the marketplace, however, has not yet been realized. Fathers who have primary childcare responsibility are unusual in our culture. The workforce, particularly at the most prestigious and highly rewarded levels, continues to be organized along a male model and to feature a glass ceiling, hindering the advancement of women. 
dual career couples typically do not share the home front duties. Instead, uh, women work a second shift at home or if they can afford to do so, hire mother substitutes. Law typically follows rather than leads social change. The trends identified in this paper form the context within which family law must respond to the further evolving roles of women and men over the 21st century. These trends, however, are not limited to the family and cannot be accommodated entirely within family law. Broader social initiatives are needed to enable the trend towards equality between men and women to flourish. Some of these initiatives have already begun. Others were prematurely rejected. All of them, however, should be given high priority on the agenda for the 21st century. That agenda should include, first, social support for children should become part of our national policy. As a nation, we have placed great value on independence and privacy. This has led us to assign the primary responsibility for child rearing and child support to parents with few social supports that can provide a safety net for children when parents are unwilling or un unable to discharge their responsibility. Feminist analysis of no-fault divorce and its aftermath has repeatedly suggested that our national leaders explore the child-centered policies available in other Western industrial countries and consider broader changes that would positively affect family life. Second, uh, the uh, government must continue vigorous enforcement of existing laws prohibiting discrimination in the workplace. One of the major sources of different standards of living in households headed by women and those headed by men is the continued wage gap between men and women. As Professor Stephen Sugarman has noted, quote, although women typically begin their divorces with lower standards of living than their former husbands, it is also the case that they typically enter marriage with lower personal economic prospects in the paid labor force, close quote. The ALI Family Dissolution Project has undertaken measures to compensate women for losses they incurred during marriage as a result of childcare and dependent care, but employment law and policy must ensure that women are not penalized when they return to work. Third, employers should continue what they have already begun by creating flexible work schedules to accommodate parents with childcare responsibility. These suggestions are not meant as solutions to the cultural strains and moral conflicts that have accompanied the rapid period of change that family law has experienced over the past 30 years. They are among the necessary steps to facilitate further development and to recognize and consolidate the valuable reforms that have been made. The challenges of the 21st century cannot be met by a return to 19th century family law, which required that women function as the second sex. The fundamental changes in women's opportunities highlighted in this paper were hard won and will not be abandoned by tomorrow's women. Young girls growing up today have very different expectations about their lives than their mothers did. Their daughters are likely to be even less constrained, either by the law, the marketplace, or social arrangements. Still, it is a safe prediction that family life will continue to be attractive. If it is to continue to offer the best opportunity for happiness and fulfillment for adults and children, it must receive more than society's blessing. Defining and facilitating family life in egalitarian terms must become a high priority on the national agenda as we approach the new millennium.
any questions for Professor Kent? Yes, Rachel. Yes, that, that's that's part of the paper that you could read in the, in the California Law Review. Yes, it's quite it's quite accurate that uh, uh, as women become less dependent financially on men and uh, are able to structure their own uh, uh, individuality and personality, they are marrying later and uh, postponing childbearing, and some are not marrying at all. And in a quite perceptive paper by uh, our visiting colleague Ira Elman, uh, Ira suggested that the, the challenge for the next century may well be how to encourage marriage uh, rather than uh, how to prevent divorce. <laughs> yes? Does the equality in your view require uh, the admission of uh, women to, uh, for example, football teams and you know, cases involving that? And if so, I mean, you infer from that that uh, it won't be any single-sex sports, essentially. It'll be you know, one basketball team, whoever can, 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 can gain admission to it uh, by whatever new court well, th th there's been a lot of discussion of that. Uh, one suggestion that was made early on uh, for what colleges and, and high schools should do uh, was uh, that, that there should be three teams. There should be a, a unisex A team, then there should be a women's team and a man's team in all sports. The only problem with that, that despite its legal symmetry, is its exorbitant cost. So I don't think that's going to happen uh, terribly soon. There have been, as you say, a few... Um, uh, litigated cases which have gotten for a few women access to uh, primarily baseball. Sometimes there have been one or two cases about football, one of them under the Washington State Equal Rights Amendment, uh, and a lot of cases involving men who want to play on women's soccer teams. So I think that, uh, that this is going to, to work towards a, a merit-based standard that may mean that only those few women who are athletically quite superior will be able to play in mixed teams, uh, but that uh, the, the great impact of Title IX, as, as I tried to indicate about the, uh, the women's soccer team in the summer of 99, is the enormous difference in attitude it has created among young women uh, growing up in, in what they are physically capable of doing. Yes? This kind of growth, both in divorce and in non-marital <coughs> laws, for example, tax policy and laws addressing the fact that families are no longer typically two parents and kids? Well, there have been uh, efforts uh, as recently as this last uh, congressional term to do away with the so-called marriage tax. Uh, we haven't quite worked out how to do that yet. Uh, in terms of positive tax reinforcements of uh, child care and, and uh, support systems uh, in the society as distinct from in the individual family. Uh, there has been some movement in that direction, but so far nothing anywhere close to what you can see in, in other Western industrial nations. Yes? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the first part of your question. Oh, I was wondering how likely you feel the resurgence in the, in the interest of the ERA. Oh, the ERA. Well, there, there, uh, uh, there appears to be 
two strategies. One, that you would have to start all over again with a new uh, drive and have to start over with getting every individual state. There's another argument that you could simply uh, have a renewal drive, which what you'd have to do would be to get the other three states. Um, I guess that, that you know, although um, I'm not sure that I'm quite up for another ratification drive, I do think that, um, as we've seen with the abortion decision, I mean, the vote is now five to four, uh, and, uh, and, and I agree with uh, Sylvia Law and others who think that the abortion right would be uh, much more secure if it had been based on equal protection rather than on the uh, due process clause. So I think an equal rights amendment would have the effect of doing that right away, that, of course, would make it more controversial in terms of the, the arguments for and against it. But I suppose uh, if, if it could be um, uh, done that, that nobody can uh, repudiate and all we have to do is to see if we can get three more, which may not be <laughs> feasible, certainly not politically and maybe not even legally, um, I guess uh, I'd be willing to give it another go. Yep. Yes. were to have um, in office an anti-choice president, we all actually, all three of us, were wondering what kind of ramifications that could have legally and on and on already existing laws. Well, uh, the vote is five to four, uh, and, uh, and and it's, it's fairly clear that having uh, lost the late-term abortion litigation in this most recent term, uh, the people who drafted that statute are now in the process of drafting statutes that they think will meet the objections that were uh, you know, set out in, in that opinion, uh, and uh, that they will be back with a new statute, which uh, in due time will work its way to the Supreme Court. And um, you know, a, a president who is anti-choice would have the freedom of nominating a Supreme Court justice uh, who was anti-choice, and then you would have, I'm sure, another confirmation battle, uh, such as the one that you had around Bork, and uh, the question would be how closely uh, divided the Senate is, depending on what happens in the next couple of weeks. The Senate may be equally divided between the uh, Democrats and the Republicans, with the Vice President being the President of the Senate uh, and able to break ties, and we don't yet know who the vice president will be, so, so there's, a, there's a little uncertainty along those lines, but, but yes, I think uh, the next president will be very influential on that score. The, uh, the, the, the first equal right, the first uh, human, what was it called, the, the human life amendment, I guess, was offered uh, within 10 days after Roe versus Wade was decided. It's been kicking around ever since. It's never gotten to, uh, to an actual floor vote. And uh, again, I think, you know, it's a question of what might happen uh, under the leadership that, that you would have uh, in, in the presidency and, and, and uh, what the, the Senate uh, is likely to do. Um, the last, during the debate on the late-term abortion bill, which repeatedly gets passed and, and President Clinton has repeatedly not signed it, uh, there was a, a, a sort of non-binding vote taken on reaffirming Roe versus Wade, and that passed by, I think, about a dozen votes. So it's really very, very close. 
Yes. Yes. You take your hat to Simone de Beauvoir in your title. Yes. Yes. I'm wondering if you consider the uh, model provided by the European social welfare state viable in the American context. Uh, theoretically, yes. Politically, probably not. But yes, uh, I, I, I do. I, I do give Simone de Beauvoir uh, uh, an identifying footnote for for anybody who may not recognize where I got the second sex from. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I guess yeah, you mentioned at the beginning of your talk that uh, your uh, military spouse deserted. Um, those were grounds for divorce. Yes. Uh, did that happen also during the Vietnam War? I mean, if uh, your military husband went AWOL, I mean, were those grounds for divorce as well? Um, the grounds for divorce vary by state. Uh, uh, the uh, presence of no-fault divorce statutes, uh, which usually have either a breakdown of marriage or an irreconcilable differences test, would suggest that if one spouse has gone AWOL and has not returned to the family, that the marriage is certainly broken down irretrievably and probably that there are irreconcilable differences as well if you have to show that. So you probably wouldn't have to actually prove desertion unless there was some you know, benefit under a particular state law of using that kind of ground for divorce. I want to thank you very much for a wonderful lecture, but don't leave. You can continue to talk to Professor Kane. These walls are going to magically open and there will be food and drinks, so please stay. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.